From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When it's severe, scoliosis and other adult spinal deformities may require surgery. And here to talk about how that's done is Dr. Michael Galgano. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Upstate. Thank you for being here and welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Galgano. Thank you for having me, Amber. Now, scoliosis is a, a spinal curvature. Um, is this something people are born with, or is it something that develops over time? Uh, both, actually. So there's the pediatric causes, and then there's adult causes. Uh, we definitely do see congenital scoliosis, where a child may be born with it. Sometimes a child can get what's called acquired scoliosis, where maybe they have a spinal tumor or a spinal cord tumor, and that could render the spine in a curved state. Other times it could be what's called idiopathic, whereas the child grows into adolescence, it may develop for reasons unknown. And other times the brain can misfire and it could actually cause asymmetry of the muscle contractions around the spine and that could cause scoliosis and that's called neuromuscular. So those are really the four main types of pediatric causes. As far as adults, we can see an extension from adolescent scoliosis called adult idiopathic scoliosis or we may see what's called degenerative scoliosis where basically the joints and the discs degenerate asymmetrically. So those are really the six main types that we see. Is it a factor of age in that case for an adult or, or do you know ahead of time that you're prone to develop this as you T get older? Typically it's a factor of age. So as we age the facet joints around the spine degenerate, the discs which are the cushions between the vertebrae degenerate and sometimes they degenerate not at the same rate on each side of the spine. And you can imagine if you have one side of the disc that's normal and the other side is abnormal, over time, if that happens at multiple levels, the spine may be rendered in a curved state. Interesting. Now, scoliosis, but uh, other adult spinal deformities, what are, what are the other things that you typically see? The, the other type is what's called kyphosis. So kyphosis is when the spine is bent forward from a back-to-front orientation. Scoliosis is when the spine is rotated in a 360-degree, three-dimensional aspect, and it could also be curved in a more side-to-side -side or lateral orientation. And sometimes we see them both in the same patient. It's called kyphoscoliosis. Oh, you could have both. You could have both in the same Holy patient. Cow. Okay. Well, now how does somebody typically learn that they've got a problem with their spine or the deformity? So if it's a child, a lot of times the parents may notice or during a school assessment, they may notice that the child does not have a straight spine. Um, a lot of adolescents may notice it if they have what's called a rib hump or if they notice that the shoulder or the hip is asymmetric and it becomes a cosmetic issue. And a lot of times the adults actually may not realize that they have scoliosis because in the adult it tends to be more in the lower lumbar spine, not so much in the thoracic spine where it's more noticeable. So it might not be obvious to the, I don't know, naked eye. It may not be, exactly. It may not be obvious to the naked eye, especially in the adult patients. A lot of times the adult patients are much larger. They have more abdominal girth. So sometimes it is more difficult to see unless you take an x-ray or a CAT scan. It, does it ever, uh, is it ever caused by sort of bad posture or a woman carrying a, a too heavy purse all her life on one side? Uh, so, so there's definitely bad posture related to kyphosis for sure. If someone may, uh, some people develop what's called fatty degeneration of their paraspinal musculature. So basically as people age, um, sometimes the muscles are not very robust and they're replaced by fat. And what happens is that the spine cannot hold itself in an upright erect position. And that's really when it's more posture related. And sometimes it's not necessarily the patient's fault. They may not know that they harbor this, this fatty degeneration, um, if you will. So why is this a problem? Why is a deformity? So a, a lot of times it's not a problem. I would say most cases of scoliosis that I see don't 
actually need an operation. Uh, but the cases that do need an operation, really, especially in adults, is when their quality of life becomes affected to the part where they can't uh, engage in the activities that they once were doing. So let's say they were golfing or doing yoga and things like that. When a patient comes to my office and they have a significant scoliosis and they say, Doc, I, you know, I can't engage in these activities that I love to do anymore, that's really when it becomes a problem for the patients, when they become very debilitated and inactive. So they may find out they have it and and go on living with it for a while, but it, it but it progresses. And in, in, in adults, if they have degenerative scoliosis, they could definitely progress at about three to four degrees per year. If they have an extension of a childhood scoliosis, they typically will not progress once they've reached their maximal growth potential at the age of eighteen or nineteen. All right. Does scoliosis or kyphosis do they ever get better on their own? They they typically don't. Um, that being said, there's a lot of uh, modalities that can be undertaken other than surgery to help them get better, such as bracing and casting in children so that you could mold the spine into a more erect position so that as they age, the spine becomes more straight without an actual operation. Oh. But typically, scoliosis will not get better by itself. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, Dr. Michael Gagano, and our subject is um, scoliosis, kyphosis, and other spinal deformities. So I wanted to ask you how you assess someone when they end up in your office, because maybe this is an issue that they've talked to their primary care doctor about, but eventually it um, is bothering them so much that they want to look at surgical options, right? Sure. So how does that begin? What is the first appointment like with you? What do you look for? So the first thing really is just a meet and greet. It's really... Uh, frowned upon to book somebody for an operation despite how bad they may look at their first clinic visit. So typically with these types of patients, they're very complex. You want to meet and greet them, have them come back and forth to your clinic multiple times to establish a good rapport. So that's really the first thing, just getting to know the patient, uh, gaining their trust, because if you do have to operate, these are very large operations. Uh, But as far as what we do in terms of assessment, typically we'll get what's called upright x-rays. Those are the first thing is that you stress the spine, you have them stand upright, and you see what the curve looks like. And then you'll have them bend side to side to see if the curve is mobile. And then I'll lay them down and take x-rays as well. Because sometimes the curve can do different things based on the position that you have the patient laying down in. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and you also, you, you get to know them, uh, their medical history, right? Absolutely. Everything else that's Absolutely. going Especially on. with adult patients. Um, you know, with adolescent patients, they're typically healthy, but with adults, they may have heart disease. Maybe they've had a history of cancer. Maybe they have osteopenia or osteoporosis or bone or poor bone health. And all of these factors come into account when you're taking care of the adult population. Well, when you get the x-rays back and you look at the bone structure and everything, do you have to decide whether you can do something to fix them? I mean, is that a question or are you... Can you do something? It's, something can certainly be done, but it really matters how poor their quality of life is, especially for the adult patients. And sometimes in the children, the answer is there for you. Let's say they have a spinal tumor or an infection that's caused the spine to become scoliotic, or they have a syndrome with neuromuscular scoliosis, and then they hence have restrictive lung disease because of that. Your answer is there already, and those really need to be fixed. But as far as adult, it becomes more of an elective quality of life procedure at that point. And also in adolescence as well, a lot of young young ladies come in, um, neurologically they're fine, they may have no back pain, but cosmetically they're not happy with the way that they look. 
Um, so these are things that we take into account before we submit someone to an operation. And if left undone, it might it might become even worse. It, right? it, it may become worse up until their growth potential. But once they've reached puberty and surpassed that, typically the adolescent scoliosis does not profoundly get worse. But that being said, if it's at about 40 or 50 degrees, that can certainly impact the quality of life significantly moving forward. And sometimes we do see these adults that have not been treated as an adolescent that at the age of 40, 50, 60 say, hey, I, I want to have my scoliosis fixed now. It becomes a much more... Uh, challenging issue to fix because the spine was once very mobile and now it's becoming more stiff. So it becomes a much bigger operation as an adult. Oh, interesting. Well, how do you uh, coach a patient into deciding whether or not to go forward with the surgery? Because there's a lot to consider, right? There, absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, again, it goes back to what their quality of life is like, uh, especially for adults. So if, if they can't engage in what they want to do in their everyday life, I tell them it's probably time to bite the bullet and undergo an operation and make them know up front that this is going to be a 6, 9, 12-month recovery. They may not be in the hospital anywhere near that long, but as far as getting back to the quality of life that they want, it's going to take probably a minimum of a half a year to nine months afterwards. So um, that's really how I coach the patients along is that if they're not happy with their quality of life, I can get them there, but it's going to take a, it's going to take a long time to get there though. So what is the other during that time after the surgery, after you've done your part, what part does the patient have to do in terms of recovery? So it, let's say, for instance, that they're smokers. They need to stop smoking. That's a big thing. Smoking is not good for bone health. So all of the work that I do, it may not heal up properly if they're smokers. If they're obese, oh. I make sure that they lose a lot of weight because the more weight that we hold, the harder it is for the spine to basically heal up. Um, if they're osteoporotic, I make sure that they're on Forteo or a medication to optimize their bone health so that they fuse properly. So these are kind of things that we do um, as far as medically. Um, and I submit all my patients to physical therapy afterwards as well. That's something that they absolutely have to do is that now that their spine is aligned significantly different than it once was 5, 10, you know, 20 years ago, they have to kind of relearn how to walk and mobilize themselves with a different orientation of their body now. What is the surgery actually like? Do, do you cut open the person's back? To so so the typical, there's a lot of different ways to do this, but the typical way I would do this and most spine surgeons is that you basically want to find the confines of the curve and then you want to place pins and rods or screws and rods above and below the confines of the curve. And that alone will not fix the scoliosis. And sometimes you don't have to fix it. Sometimes you just want to stabilize it so it does not progress. But many times we do try to actually correct it. And that entails making bone cuts, or in medical terminology, they're called osteotomies, where we basically cut the bone either in the back, the front, or both to free up the spine and loosen it so that we can maneuver it and mobilize it back into a more straight orientation. So you do actually move the spine from where it's curved to a more straight alignment. Absolutely. It's a very big undertaking. These surgeries can take anywhere from about 8 to 12 hours sometimes. Sometimes we have to do them in multiple stages as well oh, over wow. the course of a few days. Um, what's, what's the recovery like for the patient in the hospital after? It sounds like what you do would cause a lot of pain, um, for after. Absolutely. It, it definitely causes pain. Uh, we do have a new local anesthetic that we use now that lasts for about 36 to 72 hours. So it really takes the edge off for the first few days. And I've noticed a significant difference in the amount of narcotics my patients have to use after surgery. Huh. Um, I would say most patients are in the hospital for maybe about seven to 10 days in the acute care setting. And then depending on how old they are, maybe if they're in their 60s, and above, we'll send them off to either acute or subacute rehabilitation for a few weeks afterwards. Do they have to lay flat? 
because no, of... no, they absolutely do not. I actually want them to be up and mobilizing uh, really the next day after surgery. So my expectation is that they're up in a chair eating meals the next day after oper the operation. And then maybe on post-operative day two, we have physical therapy, get them out of a bed, give them a walker and have them start mobilizing, using the restroom, walking around the nursing unit and things like that. The longer that they're in bed, uh, the worse that they do. So I try to mobilize my patients very quickly. Okay. Well, talk to me about the potential complications. So there's a very large complication profile. The most common thing is significant blood loss that would require transfusion. Many of these surgeries do require that, and I tell all the patients up front that there's a very high probability they're going to end up needing a blood transfusion. And that's typically not a big issue. Uh, these days we do good type and cross-matching, so that's typically not an issue. Um, the more worrisome complications are the fact that uh, when we straighten out the spinal column, the spinal cord also gets straightened out as well. And you could definitely have uh, temporary or permanent neurological problems with some of these big operations. And the way that we get around that, we have a neuromonitoring technician to monitor the integrity of the nerves in the spinal cord throughout the duration of surgery. So if there's any issues, they alert us and then we could maybe loosen up our correction or not do as an aggressive correction. Okay. So those are things to consider or patients need to think about? As... Absolutely. Yeah. We have to, uh, you know, uh, consult the patients and tell them before surgery that, you know, the entire uh, spectrum of the complication profile, just so that they know what they're getting into so that there's no surprises afterwards. Uh, but most of these, if it's done meticulously, carefully, uh, properly planned, most of these surgeries do, uh, patients do very well. Wonderful. Now, what are the chances of scoliosis redeveloping after surgery to correct it's, it. It's, it's relatively uncommon. Um, more than scoliosis redeveloping, you could actually see what's called kyphosis develop, which is a uh, back-to-front orientation. So sometimes when the, fuse, uh, the spine is fused in multiple segments, the level directly above the last level that's fused will actually bend forward. And we could see that. It's called post-junctional kyphosis. And um, there are ways to get around that where we could actually place bands around the spine directly above where we fuse to try to prevent it from hunching over at some point. Uh, but as far as scoliosis redeveloping, once it fuses and it's healed, uh, the chances of it redeveloping and the areas that have been instrumented are, are slim to none. And the rods and the pins that you install, do those stay in forever? They typically stay in forever in adults and adolescents. If we're doing the scoliosis surgery in a very small child that has not reached their maximal growth potential, they'll typically be taken out. Otherwise, that will stymie their spinal growth as they age. Oh. Uh, now, in the, in the adults where it's, uh, the pins are in there, does the bone just um, grow around it? Or? It does. So we, so we typically place synthetic bone products around the bone so that the pins and rods are there really as a temporary uh, cast or construct until the bone heals. And that's typically what we do. Sometimes we actually use the patient's own bone. So when we have to uh, do our bone cuts, some of the bone gets removed, we morselize it and we actually give it right back, but we put it in a different location of their back. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this and explaining it all. Thank you for having me, Amber. My guest has been Dr. Michael Galgano, an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.